If you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Um, while you're doing that, I'm going to give the kids a few minutes uh, to find the eight bingo pictures in this next slide. I don't know if any of y'all are still doing the bingo, but um, we've got new prizes, so just saying. Um, well, I'm going to talk to the grown-ups here. So, so church, listen, you probably know this, but in case you don't, the world is changing really drastically, really quickly. Anybody else noticed that? Yeah? Okay, just making sure. You know, a few years ago, I decided I wanted to preach through the book of Acts with this congregation. I believed that I was led to do that for several reasons. Uh, one was in order to kind of experience a reset when it comes to our priorities as part of the American church. And another was to rekindle our zeal for evangelism and for making disciples of Jesus Christ, because there's a lot of that that we see in the book of Acts. But also, I, I believe that the church, and this church particularly, that we could be motivated by, by the community practices of the early Christians. I thought that was a valuable thing for us to look at. Now, all of those things are still important, still true. However, I believed at the time that, that God was leading me to preach through one of the Gospels first, which ended up being Luke, since Luke also wrote Acts. And it's a very long, um, it's a very long Gospel. It's the longest of the four Gospels. And it's also the one that... Uh, that took about three years to preach through, <laughs> and so uh, it took us a while to get into Acts, but now as I look back on it, I believe the Lord was saving the book of Acts for such a time as this. I think he was, he was giving us an opportunity to go through the Gospel of Luke, to read the words of Christ, to experience some of what happened together in that Gospel, but then the book of Acts was intended to be studied by this congregation for such a time as this in the world today. Because along with a reset of priorities, along with a rekindling of zeal, along with a focus on community, now there is a potentiality of persecution for those who follow Christ. Now, frankly, the potentiality has always been present, but it, but it was usually off in some other part of the world, right? But now, Western Christians, unfortunately, I think many Western Christians have had their head in the sand about that. And we're starting to see it more. We're seeing it more on television. You know, we're watching the news and we're seeing what's happening in other nations. We're seeing how the, the shift in society against Christianity is happening. We're seeing that, that the world is becoming much more hostile, this part of the world, than it was before to the gospel. I want to encourage you to please, please, if you're not already, and hopefully you are, please be in prayer for our brothers and sisters that are in parts of the world that are hostile to Christianity. If you're not already doing that, if that's not part of your regular prayers, please add that. They need it right now. You know, some of them regularly deal with, with actual persecution. There's some people that are being tortured and killed daily in parts of the world for being faithful to Jesus. And I, I honestly, I don't think that we're going to experience that same type of persecution here in the United States as what's happening in the other parts of the world. But it is clear that we Christians will no longer have the favored status that we once enjoyed. Okay, I just want to, I want to make sure we all know this. There are going to be some, some accusations. There's going to be even downright hatred that is going to come your way. That's going to come my way. All of us is going to come our way. And it will not be always only from those that we expect it from. That's kind of an introduction to today's story. Okay, the, the key player in the next three messages, at least, is one of the men that... Uh, that was mentioned in last week's passage when we talked about the, the church deacons being instituted or appointed. And 
This is the deacon named Stephen. Some of you are familiar with, with the, the story of Stephen. He is a man that exhibits great signs of godliness. Okay, we see him in today's text. We see that he became far more prominent, uh, at least early on, he came far more prominent in the life of the church because God called him into a more prolific ministry. Remember, he started out with, with doing the, the distribution of food to widows, but he got brought into a, uh, a, a much more widespread role. And he began to teach, okay? And he had a, a, a public ministry. So, so just bearing in mind that the early church is still in the first few months of its life, and, and also bearing in mind that people in general had great respect for the believers, the leaders of the people had an opposite view, okay? So, now, so far, there hadn't been widespread persecution, right? I mean, there's Peter and John and the apostles had been publicly beaten. We know that. And that was for preaching the gospel, Right? And so the environment is becoming more dangerous for believers, and that's where we're coming in today on this part of the story. So it, it's not a super long passage today, but it's, it's fairly long, so instead of having everybody stand up and read with me, I'm just going to read it. Uh, I'm going to read it through for you one time, but I'm going to ask you to follow along with your eyes and with your mind, and then we're going to go back over it. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was uh, speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, and the elders, and the scribes. And they came upon him, and seized him, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father God, as we go over this passage today, please open our minds to understand. Open our hearts to receive your word. Let it be humbly planted in us that we might see it grow wonderful, beautiful fruit of the Spirit. And that people will be moved by what they see. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. You guys probably know um, that I, I try to make every sermon about one main thing. It's usually reflected by the title, okay? But that main thing often has points and subpoints. Uh, and our first subpoint today, our first main point today, is that all of us believers should strive to live like Stephen, okay? Okay? All right. Now, if your name is Stephen, I'm talking about the one in the Bible, but you can live like him too. He's a pretty good guy. Uh, so live like Stephen. Now, before you go... Oh, no, 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 no. I don't think so. I don't have his gifting. Then understand this. I'm not saying any of us are going to be exactly like Stephen in the Bible. Even among the believers of the time, he was pretty distinct, okay? But anyone who is a born-again believer will have the same advantages that Stephen had, or at least one main one. Anybody know what that is? The Holy Spirit, thank you. I was going to wait. <laughs> he had the Holy Spirit. Do we have the Holy Spirit? Yes. 
Absolutely. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. So he was given abilities beyond the natural, and that's where we're starting here today. There's a lot of info about how Stephen presented himself in this first paragraph. So we're going to go back over that. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But this last, this last sentence is really interesting to me. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. All right, so we're going to break this down, okay? First of all, if we want to live like Stephen, we need to be full of grace and power. We need to be full of grace and power. What does that mean? You know, to be, to be full of grace, that, that's the word, uh, we, we actually have a, a term for full of grace in English, it's graceful, right? But that has more to do with like physical movement, we usually think of, you know, somebody, the fluidity of movement or whatever, than, than what scripture means, when scripture says someone is full of grace. So I'm going to speculate here a little bit, but I, I think it's a legit speculation, so just hang with me, okay? The word that we read as grace is the word charis. If you've ever known uh, a, a girl named Charis, okay, that's the, the transliteration of this Greek word, charis. Um, and, and it means gift. Okay? Charis means gift. And we use it as a noun. We use the word grace both in the sense of an actual gift and also uh, of an attitude that is very generous in spirit. I think Stephen had both. He was very open-handed with everyone he met. He was a good example of one who had received freely, and so he was freely going to give, all right? So, but what is he giving? Well, Luke says he was full of power. So b before we jump ahead of ourselves, though, whose power was he full of? God's power. Okay, thank you. Not his own power, okay? He's full of the power of God. And if we want to know what that looks like, Luke explains in the rest of the sentence, okay? In, in Stephen's case, it resulted in signs and wonders, which probably meant miracles of healing, miracles of provision. Now, I'm going to ask this, and it's okay if the answer is yes. I do believe God still does these things today, just not as frequently, perhaps, as he did back then. Has anyone here ever been used by God to do a sign or wonder in the biblical sense? Anybody? Okay. It's, uh, it's a lot more rare, I can tell you that than it was then. But the application is still fair that God enables us with grace and power in order that we can do his will and do his work. Okay, in Stephen's context, that, that was apparently signs and wonders. In your context, it's going to appear differently most of the time. You know, for instance, probably half the people who regularly attend this church serve in the church in some way, serve in the congregation. Okay? And if you, if you do that cheerfully, and if you do it well, then I believe that is a manifestation of God's grace and God's power working through you to accomplish whatever his will is and his work in that role. And if you are at work reaching out to your coworkers or leading a Bible study for, for young believers, or if you're caring for a person who can't care for themselves, or if you're writing notes and cards to encourage others, if you are doing that in the name of Jesus, then you are, in a sense, living like Stephen. When you do this, when you serve God by serving others through his gifting and through his ability working in you, then you are, you are doing what Stephen was doing, perhaps not on the same scale, 
but you're still doing what Stephen was doing. And it's okay that it's on the same scale. So, so just as, as every part of the human body has value, so does every part of the body of Christ. Regardless of role, uh, regardless of, of what we may think we're capable of, or fear that we're not capable of, we are still valuable in the body of Christ. And as we go through the rest of this paragraph, um, we're going to see there's several opponents of Stephen that, that really wanted to stop him from being used by God in such powerful ways. So there's a collection of men, not going to read their names again, but they belong to, to at least four different sectarian groups. They banded together to try to shut Stephen down. Okay, And I love the description of why they couldn't. Luke says they were unable to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So I think if we have anything to learn from this verse, I would say that is we too must learn to speak with wisdom and the spirit. We must learn to speak with wisdom and the spirit. Why? Let me ask you a question. Does the... Does speaking foolishly or speaking out of our carnal nature, does that bring glory to God? No, of course not. There's even a passage about that. It says the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God, right? So we Christians are supposed to glorify God in everything we do, right? 1 Corinthians, what, 10, 13 or 31? I always mix it up. <laughs> it's one or the other. It says do everything for the glory of God. But if we carry that a step further, we, we'll recognize it is our duty, it is our privilege. If we apply this, is what I'm saying here, it is our duty and privilege to accurately represent God to an unbelieving world. When they look at us, they should see Jesus working through us, just as they did Stephen. Okay? And that means speaking with wisdom and the Spirit. Now, the Spirit, just the, when he says the Spirit, that's obviously a reference to the Holy Spirit of God, okay, which is given to everybody who's in Christ and whom Jesus said would bring to his disciples um, the, the things that Jesus said. He said that the Holy Spirit would help them remember the things that he said. Jesus also said that his Spirit would, would give his apostles the words to speak when they were arrested, when they were brought to trial, which is exactly what happens here with Stephen, okay? But what's wisdom? We know what the Holy Spirit is, I hope. What's wisdom? We hear the word a lot. It comes up a lot in Scripture. Proverbs is filled with, with verses about wisdom and what it is and what it looks like. Wisdom is understanding how to rightly relate to God and to other people. And then the culmination of wisdom is living, thinking, and speaking according to that, that knowledge, that understanding of how to rightly relate. We Christians need to be faithful and speak with wisdom and the Spirit. When we do that, not only are we honoring God, but, but guys, we are lifting up Christ in a way that He might use to draw someone to Him. That's a big deal. That's a powerful thing. But there's another perk. If we're speaking with wisdom in the Spirit, we win arguments. We win arguments. Now, you might think, I don't know about this, but just, just ponder that for a minute, y'all. If you handle things with patience, it is nearly impossible to lose an argument when you're right. And if you're truly speaking with wisdom and with the Spirit, 
you're going to be right. Wisdom is from God. Godly wisdom is from God. And the Holy Spirit, being the third person of the triune God, cannot lie. Amen? God cannot lie. Okay? Now, we are not infallible, all right? And that's, that's, that's a really obvious thing. You probably know that you're not perfect. If you don't know that, let me just tell you now, you're not. Okay? You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. We are not infallible. And I don't think that we can infallibly know what is right and wrong. But if we rely on God's word, if we rely on his spirit, we're in a much better position than someone who is basing their argument on secular wisdom, which is, of course, of the devil. Or of their own opinion. It's one or the other. And we see in our text that Stephen, Stephen couldn't be refuted because he spoke with wisdom and the Spirit. Again, meaning that he was right. He was right in what he said. Unfortunately, human beings don't like to lose arguments, right? We tend to become envious, and that's clear in what happens next. Since his opponents couldn't win the argument against him, they decided to cheat, okay? Luke writes, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, I want you to pause there, okay? Before we get into exactly what they said, just notice what's happening here, okay? This seems to be a pretty common thing that happens in the Bible. And it's pretty disconcerting when you think about it. False witnesses are apparently a really easy way to take out an enemy. They're a really easy way to shut down an opponent by silencing them with death. So they hired false witnesses against Stephen, just like they hired false witnesses against Jesus, just like Jezebel ordered some men to be false witnesses against Naboth in the Old Testament. There, there are multiple accusations in the Old Testament prophets about people taking bribes and perverting justice, and it is a terrible shame. And frankly, I'd say it's a common thing today, too. I saw a meme the other day that said, did you know that 90% of scientists support the views of the people who pay them? <laughs> I think that's probably true. This is a sad commentary on our current culture, but I think it's got a point. Stephen's enemies decided that they wanted to take him down, so they hired some folks to lie on the stand. These, these are the expert witnesses of old, and they are just as corrupt as some of the ones we have today. So... I think it's fair to say, if you're trying to live like Stephen, Stephen expect some opposition, and not just opposition, but accusation. The people who do not like you are going to impugn your character. They're going to, to slam your actions. They, they don't like what you have to say, so they want to shut you down. And you may have noticed, by the way, I put an asterisk next to the word accusation. And there's reason for that. Uh, while some of what we're accused of may have basis in fact, much of it is likely to be partially, if not completely, false. Okay? Satan, ever since, ever since Genesis 3, has been a master of taking truth and mixing in some lie and using that to damage mankind in ways that stagger the imagination. And since people that aren't on God's side are on the side of the devil, there will be some who will use old Captain Sate's tricks. 
So looking at the accusations that are made against Stephen, I think we can see some parallels between them and, and what we're likely to be accused, up today, uh, accused of today if we stand up for the Lord, okay? First, expect to be accused with regard to the law. With regard to the law. When these false witnesses attacked Stephen, they were instructed to, to accuse him of blaspheming against Moses and against God. Now, Moses was the most revered person in Jewish history up until that point, okay? Because it was through Moses that, that God delivered the Levitical law to the Israelite people. And so, to speak out against Moses was to speak out against the law. And the irony here is, is, is much of what was then Law in Jewish culture were actually man-made rules, right, in an attempt to, to be stricter than God's law that he gave to Moses. I know we've talked about this before, but it's that the whole building a fence around God's laws, you know, so you don't even get close to God's laws, and then you end up all of a sudden th that fence becomes the law, and then you build a fence around that. And, I mean, it, 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 and we get so far away, we get to the place where we say it's, it's uh, immoral to, to play cards or to dance or, you know, whatever. We have to be careful about that. So many of these laws that they called Moses weren't really Moses' laws. Okay? And too often the, the Israelites were either ignorant of the fact that the, that the law was stricter than the actual law that God had delivered to Moses, or else, or else they were unwilling to stand up and say, hey, you've added to God's law, because they didn't want to make waves, right? They didn't want to cause a problem there. And the Pharisees, they were apparently quick to use those, those additional laws to their own advantage. We see them trampling the needy left and right. Jesus is constantly, when he, when he comes down to them, he talks about them devouring widows' houses. He talks about them leading people astray and, and blocking the door to heaven so people can't get in. He talks about them taking a, a, a proselyte and making them twice the son of hell that they are. So this, this is a pretty awful thing that's happening with the Pharisees. They used the law as a cover to act unjustly. I'm going to make some quick parallels here because... Because we live in the same fallen world. We have those who will try to tell us that something is moral because it is legal. Now I want to remind you that, that chattel slavery was once legal in the United States of America. And even after that was abolished in the United States, injustice was the coin of the realm during the Jim Crow era too. But thanks to, you know, the people like Rosa Park and, and MLK and Megger Edvers and others, they stood up against the unjust laws so that those laws would be overturned and so that justice could flow like a, a river and righteousness like a stream. That was, that was uh, from Amos. It's one of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite passages. He would often quote that, you know. But we're not just talking about things that happened decades ago. More to the point, abortion is currently legal in this country. And I'm, I'm going to say this from the pulpit, online, that I am, for all practical purposes, an abolitionist when it comes to abortion. Okay? I, I believe that it's always the killing of an innocent human being and that, that a baby should be allowed to come to term in any case where it doesn't lead to the imminent death of the mother. And that's even something I think we can discuss. But for, I just want to say, if, if it is not the mother's life, We're talking about murder. We're talking about murder. But there are, there are those who, who think that abortion is not the evil that it is simply because it's legal. 
And there are others who act as though God has changed his mind about marriage being between a man and a woman simply because the state has sanctioned same-sex unions and calls them marriage. Folks, listen, we need to love mothers who have gone through the terrible experience of aborting their own child. We need to love them, and we need, we need to, 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 to come alongside the, the single mothers who have made the choice to raise a child that they, that they said, I, I can't do this. I'm going to keep this baby. And so we need to come alongside them. We need to help them. And guys, we need to love homosexuals and people who have gender dysphoria. We need to treat them with great kindness, but we still need to encourage them to know the Lord and know the truth. We need to pray for the, these lawmakers in this country and the abortion doctors and, and the woke clergy that God will open their eyes to the truth. And if we are accused of speaking out against the law and it's a wicked law, then let's wear that badge proudly. Next, the false witnesses were told to accuse Stephen of blaspheming God. And listen, um, if we stand firmly on biblical principles, there will be those who accuse us regarding the Lord. There will be those who accuse us regarding the Lord. There will be those who are professing Christians that will call us bigots and call us hateful if we don't roll over and show our bellies to this woke culture, you know, that's infiltrating the church. We'll be told that we're not being Christian if we stand up and speak boldly against sin. One of the greatest ways to love a person is to warn them of danger at risk of them getting upset with you. Sometimes you guys probably know uh, when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, Satan used scripture. He took it out of context and he used it trying to fool Jesus. Jesus, of course, didn't fall for that. But we're going to have scripture incorrectly used against us, such as what is now the best known scripture. It used to be John 3.16. Now the best known scripture in America is probably Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Bear in mind, church, that the Christian who stands up for the Lord and his word is not condemning the sinner, but explaining to fellow sinners what God himself has already condemned. Just as Stephen was spreading the word of God, Stephen was, was doing good. We should be spreading the word of God and doing good. And, and I, listen, I want to say again, we are not told in Scripture that we ought to be jerks for Jesus, okay? Just want to make that clear. Don't be a jerk when you witness. It's not about winning the argument so that you win. It's about winning the other person's soul. And God uses us to do that. I just want to reiterate that, okay? There's no benefit to being hateful when you're being accused of hate. That just proves a point. Instead, reflect Christ by loving everyone and especially loving our enemies. Amen? Amen. We are never more like Christ than we are loving our enemies. But don't go to the other end of the spectrum and pretend that loving someone means never confronting them with what God has to say about sin. You know, many, many denominations have chosen to stop confronting sins because they feel like it's not inclusive enough. 
And so they are there. They might be quick to pass judgment, not on sins, but on those of us who refuse to accept that worldly approach. The exclusivity of Christ and the morality, the, the exclusivity of the morality that the Christian faith is, is inherently imbued with, those things should not be compromised on. So, so listen, guys, be prepared for accusation with regard to the Lord, with regard to your relationship to him. And there, there's one more sub point here that will become more apparent in our last paragraph. So we're going to read on. These false accusers said of Stephen, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. First of all, is that true? <laughs> is that true? Did Jesus say that? Would Stephen say that? Of course not. Okay? It, it, certainly not likely. I mean, it's quite possible that Stephen mentioned Jesus' words because Jesus himself said, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. Okay? But he was referring to his body, and the disciples figured that out later because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. But even if, even if Stephen did say that, then they were just completely twisting his words. So what are they actually accusing him of? This is interesting to me, okay? They're referring not only to the law, but also the customs that Moses delivered. And perhaps even more up front, this holy place. Now what are they talking about? What's that? His law. They are, that, that is part of it, yes. But when he says this holy place, what are they referring to? The temple. It, it, it's possible that they're referring to Jerusalem, but it's more likely they're referring to the temple because, you know, that's actually, the temple is where the Sanhedrin met. So I think they're probably saying, this holy place, right? So, anyway, it, it, they're accusing Stephen not only of speaking against Moses and God, but of blaspheming what was the heart of religious life for Jews, which was the temple. This was a sacred place, especially for the Israelite male, okay? Now, how does this apply to us? Church, we are going to receive accusations from the world with regard to our loyalties. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to give you a second let you write that down while I take a sip of coffee here. It's probably going to step on a few toes, but it's important to understand. If you were a Jewish male, to speak out against the temple would be like setting the American flag on fire while dancing on your grandma's grave. Okay? It, was, it was considered a terrible thing to do by literally almost everybody. You just don't blaspheme the temple. You don't talk bad about our temple. And whether Stephen actually did it or not is something I don't, I don't think we can know for sure, but I doubt it, at least in the way he was accused of. But friends, listen to me. If we stand firm on the word of God, we are probably going to be accused of being disloyal to things that we're expected to be loyal to. I mean, sometimes our faith in Jesus Christ is going to lead us to take positions that may be viewed as unpatriotic. Or they may be viewed as being against whichever side of the political spectrum that you're on. Sometimes our faith might lead us to challenge the views of our state, even the great state of Texas. You know, following Christ may lead you to question the direction of your church or of your denomination. And all of that is okay because we have to be faithful to Christ first. Right? You guys are awfully quiet today. 
We need to be faithful to Christ first. Our loyalty is to Him first. And there are probably going to be times in our lives where our loyalty to Christ has to determine our loyalty, uh, our level of loyalty, perhaps, to something else. You know, whether, whether the bonds are national, whether they're religious, whether they're family ties, Jesus is first. So just expect this. Expect your faithfulness to Christ to impact other areas of your life in such a way that, that it raises questions about where you really stand. And guys, here's the thing. When it does happen, church, tell them, tell them where you really stand. Let it be known. Jesus said, if you acknowledge me before man, I will what? I will acknowledge you before my, my Father in heaven. And if you deny me before man, I will what? Deny you before my Father in heaven. So tell them where you really stand, because that opens up a great opportunity to spread the message of Christ. All right, let's get to this last verse. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, friends, that right there, that's what we want. In the midst of a trial, literally a trial, and beset on every side by haters, what better example, what better advertisement for the Lord than to have the face of an angel? You say, well, what does that mean? Church, listen. This is my, main, my last main point, but it's also the shortest point, but it, it, it's kind of the culmination of everything that we've been talking about here, so don't lose me, okay? Listen, have the face of an angel. Now, again, what does that look like? Based on pretty much every instance of, of, of an angel showing up in Scripture, shiny. Shiny. That's what angels look like, right? Shiny. You remember that, uh, that old Veggie Tales with Rack Shack and Benny? When there's the Rack Shack and Benny are in the furnace and, and the, the, the King Chocolate Bunny guy is sitting there and he's looking in there and he says, it looks like there's four in there. And, uh, and then his little henchman says, and one of them is really shiny. <laughs> you know, I think, that, I think that's, there's something to this. I think of Daniel chapter 10. The guy shows up, he looks like burnished bronze, his feet like flame. Nearly any time an angel shows up in the Bible, unless he's disguised as a human being, it's always obvious who he is. In fact, there's a place where they have to say, do not fear. <laughs> Take it easy, it's all right. I think there's a sense in which a person should be able to see on our faces who we are. Or perhaps more accurately, whose we are. Because our, our Christian countenance should shine with the radiance of God. We should shine with the radiance of God. Now what does that mean? Does that mean just you got to have like a megawatt smile? You know, we're, we're not talking about, about physical characteristics that we can draw from within our natural selves. It's a spiritual quality that shines through us because of the supernatural nature of Christ in us. His presence in us. It's not something that we, that we just go, oh, I'm just going to grin and bear it today. That's not how it works. It's because the Holy Spirit of God is shining in you. That radiance of God is shining through you. It usually has a, a type of, of peace. Um, you, know, you know who exemplifies this in my mind? She's not here anymore, but I hope she's watching from, from East Texas. Miss Patty. There's a chorus of, mm-hmm, 
just in case you're watching. <laughs> she, she had that. She had that shining like an angel. And I, I think we are to shine with the radiance of God as we do the things that the Lord commands us to do, especially the harder things. Now, I want you to think about it, okay? What are some of the things that we're commanded in Scripture? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. It's James 1, 2. Speaking of Patty, that's Bruce's favorite Scripture. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not avenge yourselves. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who hate you. And then when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. How is that even possible? It isn't humanly. It's not humanly possible. But it's something that the God, that the God that we worship, the God in heaven, the sovereign Lord on the throne, he gives us the grace and the power to do it. Amen? It doesn't come from us, but from the Lord who is in us. Okay? So far from hiding our light under a bushel, we should, we should let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Right? That's what we ought to be doing. But listen, we, we've all had times where it feels like maybe the light's gone dimmer or... or you know, uh, listen, if that's you, if you're feeling spiritually dry, then please hear what I'm saying, okay? The radiance of God comes from connection with God. You're not going to shine without the connection. The only way to truly shine is to be in the presence of the holy, to come into the throne room of the Lord God Almighty and to soak up His glory. You know, if, if you look in the book of Exodus, there, chapter 34, there's something amazing. And it, it, it mentions it so briefly, it almost seems like it's not that big of a deal, but it totally is, okay? Remember, Moses served as God's go-between, right, with his people? Do you remember that when Moses would go into the presence of God, he had a veil that he would cover his face with, he would take it off, and then when he left the tabernacle, his face was literally glowing? Do you remember this? And there's no question about what was happening when Moses was in the presence of God, people could see it. He was like one of those glow-in-the-dark matchbox cars. You guys remember that? Like, he, he, they, you keep them in bright light for a while. Come on in, man. You keep them in bright light. They're right here. There's a spot. I'm calling you out, Brennan. <laughs> Good to see you, my man. You know, you put it in bright light, and then when you turn off the lights, they glow brightly for a while, right? But then they fade. Then they fade, and, and, and after a while, you've got to put them back into the presence of the light. And that's how Moses was. And scrip Scripture even tells us he would wear a veil to cover his face, apparently be, when the Shekinah glory of God faded away, right? Because, you know, the Apostle Paul says that it was, I guess, because he didn't want people to see that the light had faded away. But the, he says, we have an advantage, though. Paul says, we have an advantage over Moses because we don't have to be like Moses, covering our faces with a veil whenever the glory of God fades. And the reason for that is because the glory of God doesn't have to fade in us because God has taken up residence in us. He lives in us. And we are being transformed from one glory to another. So what does that mean to us? If the light of God is in us, why should we squelch it? Forgive me, I know I've used the, the illustration before, but for those of you that don't understand squelch, 
In the old school, if you drove a truck or if you were a person that liked to mess with truckers, you would have a CB. And when you would not want to hear all the chatter, because you know, you'd have your, your, your antenna be real wide picking up everything, you would crank up the squelch if you wanted to hear someone closer to you so that it would push out all those other voices. And too many of us do that to the Holy Spirit. We don't really want to hear the Spirit nudging us, the Spirit pushing us. And so we turn up the squelch knob on the Holy Spirit. Why would we do that? Maybe we don't want to hear what he has to say. Let's stop doing that. Why would you want the, the light to fade? If you, listen, if you are abiding in Christ, you have the same connection to the Father that Jesus had while he was on earth. Through the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had that raised his body from the dead. So you want to shine? Then live like Stephen and embrace being an angel. And I'm not, not talking about the, you know, the separately created beings that live in heaven. I'm talking about, no, no human ever becomes an angel, by the way. So if that's, your, if that's your theology, scratch it. That's not true. Okay? No human being becomes an angel. We are two completely different types of creation, but there is one thing that Christians and the heavenly angels will always have in common, which is that we should embody the literal meaning of the word angel. The Greek word literally translates as messenger. Messenger, and that is what we are. Each of us, each Christian is given the incredible honor of knowing and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God and God the Son, and He came to earth. The fullness of deity, Scripture says, in human form. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and He rose from the grave victorious over death. That is the message we, we are called to carry, and the message that is within us is jars of clay. That is the treasure. The Holy Spirit and the gospel lives in us. And we're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to spread the gospel, just, just as we're empowered to shine brightly as we do that. Just embrace it. <laughs> embrace it, friends. Don't hide it. Don't ignore it. Embrace it. God, God has given us everything that we need to accomplish His will for us. He gives us the strength. He gives us the courage. He gives us the wisdom. He gives us the peace. He gives us the clarity. He gives us the opportunity he gives us the ability. It's all available to us through and in Christ Jesus if we are in Christ. And friends, the time is coming where I truly believe we're going to recognize just how much we need Jesus in order to shine as the world around us gets darker. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. We're going to have an invitation. And if, if you have anything going on, if you want prayer for something specific, please come forward. We're happy to lay hands on you and pray as a congregation. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, the living God today, and you've never believed that before, come forward. Make a great profession of faith in front of all these witnesses, as Scripture teaches. Be baptized by immersion, as Scripture teaches. If you've done those steps and you simply say, you know, I, I realize that I, I've really messed up, I've really walked away from God, and and I want to rededicate my life, you have the opportunity to do that publicly this morning. If you want to confess a sin, feel free. If you just need a hug, Danny will hug you. 
Will you stand up and let's sing together?